I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. As a species, we've done pretty well at figuring stuff out. We've cured diseases, mapped the human genome, and even gone to the moon. Is this all thanks to our ability to think rationally? Just because you got a bunch of people supporting some popular movement, it doesn't mean that it's a good move. It could be a, you know, a lynch mob. It's reason and rationality that tell us which popular movements we should support. And later, biologist David Sloan Wilson tackles the evolution of wisdom and goodness and says the indigenous cultures highlight this. He quotes one aboriginal text in particular. Emu is a troublemaker who brings into being the most destructive idea in existence. I am greater than you. You are less than me. This is the source of all human misery. Rationality, evolution, and humanity. How wiser choices have led to the survival of the species. All ahead on Life Examined. Science, data, and logic serve as powerful tools in formulating ideas and solving problems. But our capacity for rational thought has not always gone hand-in-hand with our ability to think and behave sensibly. In the end, we humans are a bit of a conundrum— We've doubled our lifespan, sequenced our own genome, and developed vaccines within the space of a year. But we've also produced huge amounts of disinformation, quack cures, and conspiracy theories. So what's happened to our common sense? Are we just as likely to listen to opinion, intuition, and that gut feeling versus logic and fact? In his latest book called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters, author Steven Pinker asks what's happened to our ability to recognize fact from fiction. Steven Pinker is professor of psychology at Harvard University and author of several books, including The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. Steven Pinker, it's great to have you on Life Examined. Welcome to KCRW. Thank you. When we go back and think about this idea of rationality, when does it start to show up in in kind of in Western thought, or could be even before then? I mean, when did you start seeing seeing this term as something that became important to to culture? I, I can't uh, vouch for the origin, but certainly Aristotle, in trying to formalize the the laws of logic, was a prominent early example. And I suppose even before that, Socrates, in asking people to doubt their first impressions, to to, uh, challenge conventional wisdom. So he would be up there as well. And of course, Plato in between. Mm. Where did you get interested in the word? I, as a cognitive psychologist, I have enjoyed teaching the research on human judgment and decision making. A lot of it made famous by the work of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Amos was a colleague of mine at Stanford. Danny Kahneman is, among other things, a winner of a Nobel Prize and author of the bestseller Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's fascinating work than all of the ways in which humans fall short of some of the standard benchmarks for rationality. We, we make errors in uh, reasoning about probabilities in logical thinking, and uh, it's part of the standard psychology curriculum, has been for quite some time, and so I enjoy teaching it. But I've, as someone who's just interested in human nature, in uh, what makes us tick, uh, our, our, our rational faculties have got to be among the most interesting things. How did we, uh, how did our species manage to, uh, on the one hand, transform the planet, plumb the secrets of matter and life and mind, uh, and the other hand, embrace so much flapdoodle? Uh, with so many conspiracy theories and paranormal woo-woo and post-truth rhetoric. And of course, that issue has become all the more acute in the, in the past couple of years in which 
I, it kind of feels like we're living through a, a pandemic of poppycock. So it, now I, I, I'm not one to say that we are getting less rational. I'm, I'm always wary of the leap from there's some bad stuff today, therefore it was better yesterday. Often it wasn't better yesterday. And it's not clear that it was better for rationality. Conspiracy theories and paranormal uh, beliefs go back thousands of years. But it's certainly surprising now that we have so much of it, given how sophisticated our, our uh, science and technology and scholarship are. Yeah, and, and we'll get to some of this stuff that's happening right now in just a minute. But but I'm curious, still, still saying very big, big picture here, how do you define rationality? I define it as the, the use of knowledge to attain a goal, mm. where knowledge means justified true belief. So rationality is a way of attaining something, and uh, it's using um, reality, truth, uh, to, to do so. Mm. It's funny. I mean, I think I think the word science is so important here. Does that have anything to do with the definition? Well, it does. And um, science literally just mean, means uh, mere knowing or knowledge. And science, of course, is a kind of applied rationality. There's no such thing as the scientific method in the sense of a set of rituals that, that, that you know, people with white coats do. Uh, the scientific method is just how we are best able to explain stuff and uh, check to see whether our theories are true or false. Mm. How do you think that this idea of rationality has guided humans over the last couple thousand years? Yes, well, uh, it's it's guided people to figure out how to 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 kind of bend the world to our will. That mm. is, how to, to to grow more food, to build bridges, to um, prevent and cure disease. But uh, in less less obviously, I I conclude rationality uh, in the in the final chapter by saying that rationality has also guided a lot of our our moral progress, our, our quest for social justice where even though it's technically impossible to use pure logic to argue for a, for a value, for a moral value, but you can, and people did point out that some things that people were doing were inconsistent with other values that they claimed to hold. And I was surprised at how often in human history, the, 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 the first step toward a movement for social and moral progress came in the form of an argument in, in a manifesto. Now, I can't prove that that was the, the causal force, but people did, you might say, well, geez, you know, we used to burn heretics at the stake. We no longer do. Everyone realized that it was just you know, repugnant and, and awful and barbaric. Uh, but there actually were arguments at the time that uh, we should not burn heretics at the stake. And here are the, the following reasons. Here's, here's the uh, argument why we shouldn't. Likewise, for slavery, for keeping women in the home, uh, and so on. Yeah, I wonder if there are any kind of interesting examples that you found when you were researching that pointed to this question of rationality and its impact on, on social movements. Well, I couldn't. The, the problem with history, of course, is that it only happens once and we can't kind of re re rewind the tape and let it run a thousand times and uh, have some of the runs lack the moral arguments and, and, and uh, reasoned manifestos and others not and see what happened in these different uh, universes. We only have the one that we live in. So we've got to do our best at reconstructing it after the fact. So what I can, uh, the best that I can do, and I'm, I'm not a historian of ideas, but it seems that time and again, there was a uh, a manifesto. It went viral, or at least the equivalent several hundred years ago of uh, pamphlets uh, and, and and books that were avidly circulated and, and, and snuck into countries where they were censored and translated, and then discussed in salons and, and pubs and bars and coffee houses, and uh, then became the, the, the law of the land. 
so it happened with, with women's rights. It happened with the abolition of cruel tortures as a form of punishment, like uh, disemboweling and breaking on the wheel. It happened with uh, slavery, happened with democracy as opposed to absolute monarchy. So that was the time uh, sequence. We Again, we don't know what would have happened if this, this or that brilliant thinker hadn't published his manifesto or her manifesto, um, but it is, it is suggestive. And, and I say this also, you know, whether or not it did have that effect, it ought to have that effect because just because you got a bunch of people supporting some popular movement, it doesn't mean that it's a, a good movement, one that we ought to get behind. It could be a, you know, a lynch mob. It could be um, uh, you know, people with a, torches and, and pitchforks. It's reason and rationality that tell us which popular movements we should support. Do you think that reason and rationality, you know, in terms of uh, the progress that you, you've mentioned, and of course, there's sometimes steps backwards, that they speak to something much deeper in us, um, some kind of this idea of, of, of a truth already being ingrained in our nature? Or, or are we just all, you know, products of our social time and cultural times? I mean, what do you think? Well, ne neither one of those exactly, because um, a lot of truths took a, a centuries or millennia to discover, again, often against furious opposition. So they couldn't have been that intuitive. Uh, rather, if there are certain rules that we can implement, there are certain games that we can play that uh, over the course of time can lead us in the direction of truth, either scientific truth, or even if, you, if you're willing to, to use the term moral truth, at least in the sense of uh, consistency with uh, other beliefs. So, you know, is slavery, for example, is that's, that's a moral question, but, um, it, you know, it's going to be pretty hard in the end of the day to, to justify slavery. People tried in their, in their era, but it just uh, is not going to be consistent with other beliefs that you hold, such as your own freedom. Uh, how can I claim that it's good for me to be free, but it's okay for me to own you? Well, it, it's you're going to run into some contradictions there. Now, of course, if you if you if you suppress speech, if you suppress debate, if you let the people with the loudest voices or the the, the uh, most dangerous weapons hold the floor and, uh, and and shut up the people they disagree with, then we can be prevented from seeing an awful lot of truths. It's just it's the forums and the arenas and the the institutions that promote both. Uh, free free speech and open criticism and debate and evaluation that allow us to to blunder our way toward the truth. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder how important certain things like debate and discussion are when it comes to this idea of rational thought. Oh, they're absolutely essential, and that's simply because none of us is uh, infallible. None of us is omniscient. We um, and, and the fact that someone holds a belief confidently is no indication that it's a that it's true or or or, or conducive to well-being, and it's only by having forums where you get to try out an idea and other people get to point out what's wrong with it. Uh, that's the only way in which we can wander toward the truth. What's the the, the kind of social or communal function of rationality? How how do you think it binds people together? Well, the problem is there, there are certain kinds of rationality whose main function is to bind people together mm. as opposed to the function of finding out which policies work and are justified and, and what's true and what's false. And uh, I mentioned it, you asked me to define rationality and I said it's, it's the use of knowledge to attain a goal. And there's the rub because the goal could be uh, a, a correct understanding of the world, but the goal could also be to um, uh, you know, earn kudos within your clique to um, uh, show what a glorious and uh, noble and wise uh, 
um, sect you belong to uh, and how evil and stupid the opposing sect is. Mm. And an awful lot of rationality is deployed toward those dubious goals. I'd be curious to see how, how you feel this relates to something that, that's been happening a lot recently, which is an idea of, of cancel culture, um, people essentially being silenced because um, a, a mass of people think that those are not ideas worth promoting or, sh- or shouldn't be given voice to. Um, how does that fit into this conversation? Yeah, well, it's um, it, it's pernicious because the cancel culture is exactly what you must not do if you want to understand the world and figure out the best ways of getting along with one another. Uh, just simply because the people doing the canceling, unless they uh, are wearing a halo and have been anointed by the Almighty with the absolute truth, they're just people with an opinion. And uh, if they can shut people up they disagree with, then that's a guarantee that we will be locked into some incorrect beliefs, simply because they're, you know, they haven't been vouchsafed with the truth by the Almighty. They're, they're, they're human beings like everyone else. And, uh, and it's only by having an open forum where anyone gets to, to uh, voice an opinion. They also get to be criticized, of course, uh, but, they, but the opinions get to be voiced that we can have any hope of improving our lot. Mm. Is that hard for you to kind of square that with questions of, of, of free speech and also hate speech, I guess? Well, it's, um, I mean, it is the principle of free speech. I mean, that, that's why we have free speech. Uh, and hate speech is, um, you know, there is a lot of jurisprudence on uh, so-called hate speech. And, and in the United States, hate, hate speech is protected speech. Uh, the government may not uh, outlaw it. Now, th- it is possible to prosecute someone for, the phrase is imminent uh, incitement of unlawful uh, activity. Um, that is, if you're in front of a crowd and you say, you know, go, go out and kill the Jews or go out and, and then string, string up this African-American man who we're, we're accusing of uh, something terrible. Um, that is one of the restrictions on speech that at least in the American tradition is permitted. And the American legal tradition is far, tends to be more, far more permissive of speech than those of other Western democracies. Uh, the problem with uh, outlawing hate speech, if, if it is defined any more broadly than um, inciting people to commit imminent lawless activity, that is to, to whip them up so that their emotions overcome their uh, rational faculties, um, where it's almost crossing from speech into a kind of pressing buttons of behavior directly. And I think that's why that exception was carved out. But the problem is that you can call anything that you don't like hate speech and you can shut up anyone that you disagree with. And I think that's why so-called hate speech um, has been protected in American jurisprudence and why in, in general it, it ought to be protected simply because I, I've seen it happen where completely reasonable people like um, uh, Ayan Hirsi uh, Ali, the uh, originally Somalian um, uh, activist, politician, writer, intellectual, uh, has been accused of hate speech for criticizing certain uh, uh, themes in radical Islam, something a subject which she knows extremely well, and she's been that's been branded hate speech because people don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can call hate speech anything that makes you uncomfortable, then it's just a, a cover for censorship. Staying with some themes that I know a lot of us are thinking about daily, which is um, which is this virus, which is still present. Um, the fact that we could create a vaccine in such a remarkably short period of time, and, and yet there seems to be such still a large population in America that refuses to take it, and uh, bringing up, I think, big questions of rationality or how we define it. I know this is something you've been thinking about as well. Um, what are your thoughts? 
Indeed. Well, anti-vax sentiment goes back to the dawn of vaccination. And there is something unintuitive about vaccination, namely, uh, you, you actually inject someone in their, you put in their body a, uh, you know, bits of a germ, uh, bits of a contaminant, a pollutant, an adulterant. So it's, it, it feels wrong. And, uh, and, and that's why opposition to vaccination literally goes back uh, uh, to, to Jenner when he, he introduced the procedure. Now, m most of us kind of unlearn that, um, th those heebie-jeebies, that, that, because we, we know that, that uh, a lot of our gut feelings are wrong and that there's massive scientific evidence that vaccination I mean, not only works, it's, the, it's probably the best thing our species has ever done. It's just literally saved hundreds of millions, probably billions of lives over the course of human history. The problem is that not everyone uh, trusts the scientific establishment. Uh, it, it is a matter of trust in the sense that uh, very few of us who accept the safety and efficacy of, uh, of uh, vaccines actually know the data, know the studies, understand the immunology. We kind of trust the scientists to have gotten it right. And a lot of people don't trust the scientists to, to have gotten it right. All the more, even more so in, in the United States in the last year, and this is a, something of a bizarre development, it became a, a tribal identity badge to, to resist vaccines. This is above and beyond the traditional vaccines uh, resistance from the kind of the all natural eco green crowd. But now uh, many on the right, for bizarre reasons, have adopted this as their way of, uh, of owning the libs. Of, uh, if, if, if liberals believe it, then, then we can't, uh, no matter how rational it is. Now, that is quintessential irrationality, it's, uh, and, and we are suffering now from irrationality, both on the right and the left, but the variety from, from the right in the case of vaccine resistance is uh, by far the more lethal. And it seems that no matter what side you're on, everybody is using a very similar definition like the one you presented, which is using knowledge to accomplish certain goals or come to a decision. The question is, what is knowledge? Where does it come from and how do we agree upon it now? Well, you're right that that is the, the question. It means that the people who um, try to create and disseminate knowledge have a, a responsibility to show that it's it's it, that it is reliable by uh, objectivity, by permitting uh, dissent, by highlighting their, their track record, by showing the techniques that are used to um, uh, guide the enterprise toward the truth. In the case of science, you know, here are the studies, here are the methods. In the case of journalism, here is the way we fact check. Here is the way we edit. Uh, here is the way we publish corrections. Uh, and above and beyond that, because so much of the resistance to uh, expertise and establishment views comes from uh, political partisanship, from showing that the, the, the left is correct about everything and the right are a bunch of uh, stupid fools or uh, evil fools and vice versa, that a, a, a kind of a, a meta-acknowledgement, an awareness that our own partisanship our own political bias makes us less rational, literally makes us stupider, it has got to be out there. You've got to get out the idea that if you're a dyed-in-the-wool leftist or rightist, you're probably wrong about a bunch of your beliefs because that's a guarantee that you'll blow off evidence uh, against some of your beliefs. And unless you are, can say with a straight face, all of my beliefs are absolutely correct. I never make an error. And I am uh, virtuous and good about all things, which is ridiculous. Uh, but unless you're willing to say that with a straight face, you've got to be open to criticisms from people who disagree with you. And that's got to be out there as a, an essential tool, a uh, uh, principle, uh, watchword for rationality. 
Yeah, I think that that last point is pretty important because at this point, I mean, it seems that we've all now staked out our positions so firmly that there seems to be no room anymore for maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm a little right and a little wrong or, you know, so on and so forth, right? Indeed. And and there is a um, uh, a small movement called the Rationality Community of bloggers and uh, and commentators who try to promote these values, try to live by them themselves. When you read an, uh, an op-ed by someone from the rationality community, they'll say something like, well, maybe I'm wrong about this. Here's the best argument against it. And instead of setting up a straw man, namely uh, some uh, uh, cartoon critic who's really an idiot, and the only reason I'm talking about him is, is so that I can uh, squash him, uh, you, t- you do what's called steel manning. You say, well, here's the strongest possible argument against my position that anyone could make. Let's see if I can find flaws in that. Now, you know, not everyone can, can, can do that, but it is a, a, an aspiration and the people in the rationality community trying to make it more uh, common. One of the themes we seem to come across on this show is just how how hard it is. Maybe this is part of human nature, the way we think, which is our, our inability to sit with certain open questions or the idea that we may not be 100% certain on something. Do you, do you see this as well? Yeah, it is. And in fact, um, you know, one, one uh, tool of rationality, sometimes called Bayesian uh, reasoning after the Reverend Thomas Bayes, uh, is that you... Uh, assign a, a degree of credence to a hypothesis between zero and one, zero for things that are impossible, one for things that are certain, and nothing that we believe in the world falls into those extremes. And we kind of uh, 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 increment or decrement up or down the, our, our degree of belief, depending on the, on the evidence. You find that could be helpful for, for certain topics? Yeah. And again, going back to people in the rationality community, what they'll often do is I would, um, uh, I, I, I put a 0.7 um, uh, probability or 0.7 level of credence on, on this uh, explanation. Uh, something, something you don't often see and, in, in, you know, you don't often hear on uh, Fox News or MSNBC or in the op-ed columns of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but it's not a bad habit to get into. Even more, you have people who are willing to uh, make bets on their, um, uh, their their predictions. Uh, this isn't just putting your money where your mouth is, uh, but it's um, uh, assigning an actual number on your degree of, of credence. The odds that you're willing to accept reflect your degree of confidence in the belief. Mm. Speaking of uh, journalism and media, how complicit have have these uh, different news outlets, maybe even NPR two, been in in making us maybe less rational? You know, sensationalizing stories uh, playing a role in how we um, disseminate information. Yeah, so I, I certainly don't want to join the the bandwagon that just denounces the mainstream media because it's it's it's, it's often better than the alternatives because because of these mechanisms of fact checking and correcting and editing and and then developing a reputation for accuracy. But the, one of the reasons that that journalism uh, mainstream journalism is credible is because it reflects on its own practices and and a number of times in history journalists have implemented codes of of uh, of, of ethics codes of of uh, conduct um, to secure their own reputation. And I think there, there are two of them that really ought to be um, implemented now that aren't sufficiently part of the, the practice. One of them is to be aware of the my side, my side bias, as it's called, tribalism, sectarianism, partisanship, where uh, you, you just, you know, the left-wing sites push the left-wing 
position and, and uh, vice versa. Uh, that's just a guaranteed source of error. Another is the uh, distortions that come from reporting events, uh, single events, as opposed to trends backed up by data. And there are uh, ways in which journalism really mis systematically misleads people, uh, is guaranteed to mislead people by sensationalizing um, gory events that may not be representative, that, uh, that, that, that may not uh, indicate a, a trend or a significant phenomenon. School shootings are an example, terrorist attacks are, are, are another, where you're really very, very unlikely to get killed by a school sniper compared to all the other ways of dying, like car crashes and falls and drownings, and, and uh, just to say nothing of respiratory diseases. Because a lot of the things that really affect us the most are things that either don't happen, um, like cities that, that don't have a crime wave uh, or aren't attacked by terrorists, or things that creep up a few percentage points a year, and uh, like the decline of global poverty, like crime declines when, when they happen or increases when they happen. Uh, I, I think that journalism should have more, more um, kind of dashboards, the way the business section and the sports section work. Namely, they don't just report the catastrophic losses, but the team does well, you report it. The team does badly, you report it. The team, there's a tie, you report it. You, you just have the data in front of you. And we don't have that when it comes to things like carbon emissions, uh, war deaths, crime rate, uh, police shootings, uh, causes of, of death, uh, a bunch of running tallies, or at least, and, and, and reporting them in contextualizing a story would uh, allow people to be better calibrated about the state of the world and what works and what doesn't work. Instead of thinking that everything is a disaster, everything is failing, let's just uh, leading to the conclusion either there's nothing we can do to improve anything, things just get worse and worse, or let's just burn the whole system down because uh, everything's a crisis. If we had those numbers accessible, uh, and I know you have been you know, pegged as, as, a, as an optimist, that these would tell a more hopeful story about where we are. Um, yeah, a... and my point is that I'm not an optimist. I just um, look, look at these numbers that other people don't look at. Uh, that is, uh, you know, what, what's been the state of um, extreme poverty in the world? Uh, well, until just last year because of the, the pandemic, um, but it's, poverty has been plunging. Uh, something that you can't learn from headlines because there's never like a Thursday in October in which suddenly the world uh, becomes less impoverished. Uh, but as Max Roser put it, you, you could have had the headline in theory every single day, 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty today, you know, Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and Monday for, for decades. But because that um, never appeared, uh, people are unaware of this massive global development. Now, to point this out is not to be an optimist. To point this out is to point something out that people are ignorant of. Talk to me a bit about how um, this idea of rationality operates in your life. I know, for example, you, you love to ride your bike, which is an extremely dangerous thing depending on where you live, uh, just because of uh, accidents, cars, so on and so forth. You probably going out and doing that X amount of times per week puts you at a pretty big shot of being uh, of being hit. How do you, how does your rational brain make sense of a decision like that? Well, it, you know, it does lead me to think twice. And I, I did offer that in an interview as an example of uh, something that I do that, that may not be rational. So I try to calibrate by, um, for one thing, uh, if you, you know, if you ride half as much, then you cut down your chances of something bad happening by 50% right off the bat. Um, another is if you avoid the most dangerous um, situations, like the particular intersections, 
the particular place, places where you're tempted to uh, pick up speed on a downhill and you, uh, you, know, you take those cautions, it'd be kind of a way to reconcile you know, a part of me that I can't turn off, namely there's some things I enjoy more than others, with the other part of me that says I don't want to be injured. Hmm. I guess it speaks to this kind of larger question, which is that we, we prize rationality and that there is a part of us, maybe as humans, that is just irrational, that, that doesn't like to operate on those principles. What, how do you make sense of that? Well, there are big parts of us that are not rational. Some of them may just be you know, kind of bugs. Um, in the brain. Some of it might just be a mismatch between the, the world that we evolved in and the world that we have now. We didn't evolve in a world with bureaus of statistics and scientific labs and uh, historians. Uh, and so we're just, it's not, not intuitive that we can find a better truth than, than rumor and conventional wisdom and, and personal anecdote by immersing ourselves in, uh, you know, in, in libraries and, 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 and websites and government agencies. So there's that mismatch. And in others, there are some cases where there's a, a kind of perverse rationality to being irrational, like in an argument uh, between two people uh, over you know, where, where you should go to dinner, where you should take a vacation. Sometimes the, 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 the stubborn irrational one you know, gets his way or gets her way uh, because in negotiation, sometimes irrationality can pay. Now, the problem is, of course, that you can also dump the, the, the partner who's uh, you know, a, a stubborn pain in the neck. Uh, so the stepping up even one level above winning an argument, you could say, well, it's not rational to be irrational and stubborn and unreasonable. But you know, when it comes to, to, to that particular moment, there can be a perverse advantage to being irrational. I wonder, too, how this factors into this idea of, uh, as we talked about recently, this idea of dataism, everything driven by data or, or time, uh, technology or science. Do you think that's, that's a way to lead a life, too? Well, I think, um, you know, there can be bad data, there can be bad criteria for when you apply it. Uh, but on the whole, I think more, I, I tend to think more data are better, uh, just because the alternative is human intuition which is awful in, in terms of uh, making predictions, in terms of, of, of ascertaining likelihoods. And as, as prejudiced, as incomplete, as misleading as data can be when, when the data science isn't done right, um, human gut feelings are worse. Uh, and that, that is a, a topic that I discuss a bit in, in rationality. It's one of the oldest findings in psychology, and it's very robust. It, you, you, it's been shown for almost 70 years that you compare even a pretty dumb algorithm using some high school math, compare its track record against a human um, expert or maven or, or judge or clinician, and the algorithm almost always wins. This is something like, you know, will, a, uh, will, will someone graduate from a difficult degree program? Will a, uh, a suspect jump bail? Will a, uh, a convict uh, recidivate? Uh, will a psychiatric patient uh, attempt suicide? You give the same data to the human and to an algorithm, and the algorithm pretty much always does better. When you completed this book and you began to think about what you would want to leave readers with, what some of kind of the overarching themes are, the takeaways would be, I wonder how you would distill it down for us as we begin to close this conversation out. One is to doubt your gut feelings, your intuitions, your snap judgments. Mm -hmm. they're, they're often wrong. Um, to uh, take advantage of the... Um, the, the knowledge that we have won through modern institutions like science and history and, and um, journalism to uh, protect and cherish the institutions and norms that do make us more rational, such as 
uh, open criticism, free speech, empirical evaluation, fact-checking, and to appreciate that that uh, that, that rationality is, is how we do and ought to uh, apply our moral energy. What what are the causes that we that we should support, that, and what are the what are the ones that are just rousing the rabble without uh, making us better off? I've been speaking with Steven Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University and author most recently of Rationality, what it is, why it seems so scarce, why it matters. Uh, Steven Pinker, thanks for the time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And still to come here on Life Examined, we'll hear from a biologist on the evolution of goodness and human cooperation. That's after this short break. And while I have you, a big thank you from all of us here at KCRW and Life Examined for pitching in for our good old-fashioned pledge drive. Thanks to you, we can keep shows like Life Examined on the air, and you support this incredible mix of music, news, and culture that makes KCRW what it is. We certainly couldn't have done it without you. So once again, thanks again to all of you that contributed to KCRW. We certainly appreciate it. We'll be back with Life Examined after this short break. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Steven Pinker talk about the importance of rationality and how this part of our psychology has been at the root of social change for hundreds of years. So if we take this idea one step further, it may also suggest that we are perhaps evolving to become a more peaceful species, which I realize might be a hard idea to stomach, considering all the images and videos we see of violence around the world. But in his new book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, author David Sloan Wilson says that humans are in fact evolving to become better stewards of the Earth and each other. David Sloan Wilson is professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University in New York, and he joins us now. Professor Wilson, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, my pleasure. You've spent a lot of years uh, understanding evolution and, and a lot of the big evolutionary questions. And um, I, I want to start with this question. Why, why do you feel it's important for us, you know, in the public listening, to have a more nuanced idea of evolution and how, how it just factors into all different pockets of our life? Can you introduce us to some of the ideas there? I'll do that by repeating what I told His Holiness the Dalai Lama in my conversation with him, and which I think we'll be getting to. What I wanted to tell him and want to tell um, our listeners here is how much the study of evolution has changed hmm. over the last few decades. What I told him was that when I entered the field in the 1970s, evolution was just about genetic evolution. I say evolution, you hear genes. It was framed in terms of selfishness, as in Richard Dawkins' selfish genes, and it was said to have no purpose. Organisms just vary, and the immediate environment does the selecting. And there's almost no common ground between that view of evolution and these compassionate ethics for a whole world that His Holiness the Dalai Lama stands for. But now, now, evolution is much broader than genetic evolution. It's about any process that includes variation, selection, and, and replication. We can elaborate on that. It can explain virtue at face value. What we call virtuous, moral, good, compassionate can be a product of evolution. 
and it can be consciously directed. And so there's been a sea change in the study of evolution that makes it relevant to everything going on around us and is far more consilient with the whole earth ethic and in fact the whole ancient tradition of Buddhism, in fact all the wisdom traditions, uh, than, than before. And so that's that's definitely worth knowing about. Mm. So, so talk about this idea of an evolution of goodness. How do we understand that? Well, Darwin thought at first that his great theory of natural selection could explain all aspects of design that had been attributed to uh, the Creator. But gradually it dawned upon him that um, uh, an exception to that, that rule was everything that we associate with altruism and virtue. So imagine the altruistic individual, the brave, the loyal, the charitable, the good Samaritan. Inherently that involves individuals extending themselves on behalf of others. But in a Darwinian world, the virtuous individual is vulnerable to exploitation by more self-oriented individuals. If evolution is all about some individuals surviving and reproducing better than others, then uh, that would seem to count against everything that we associate with with virtue. So, so that was the problem. And but there was a solution to that problem, which is that groups of, indivi of virtuous individuals would go bustly outcompete groups of individuals who could not cohere. So mm. it turned out that his process of natural selection actually could explain behaviors that we associate with virtue, but only by a process of between group selection. So uh, virtue can be explained at face value, but special conditions are required. And uh, it's taken a long time for the field of evolutionary biology to actually return to that simple view that I just described, which Darwin was the first to appreciate. Mm. Can you give us any examples or, or ways that we can understand this idea of, of the group working together in a cohesive fashion and, and therefore thriving? Oh, there's so many examples. Um, I mean, the whole spiritual impulse, religious impulse is to think of, of us as part of something larger than mm. Uh, oneself. But I think in an everyday sense, if you just imagine what a pro-social, empathetic, compassionate individual does, how they extend themselves for others, and hopefully are surrounded by others who return the favor. So so to be, to be a, a pro-social individual is just fine, as long as you're receiving from others, in addition to, to, uh, uh, to giving. And this makes me think of of certain Nordic countries, for example, um, that there is this sense of being together as as one country trying to work towards a common good. Can we look to certain um, countries to to help us understand some of these ideas? Uh, indeed, we can. Uh, in the first place, there's a lot of variation among nations and in how inclusive they are. And Norway leads the pack in terms of the most inclusive, the most uh, uh, the most cooperative. I've studied Norway in quite a bit of detail, and the Norwegians have a custom called dugnad, which is basically doing things together, usually outdoors, followed by a meal. And, um, and so historically, as you might guess from the environment, um, the uh, sort of the harsh environment, 
uh, really requiring people to work together in groups. So that's a part of our culture. But do you know our own country counts as an example too, at mm. least in some periods of its history. When we were a melting pot and so on, uh, there was a whole period in which America was indeed the land of opportunity and people could come and they could acquire a new identity. They were, they were um, Americans. And that's been true for our country only at some points in our history. Now we're at a low point uh, of divisiveness, but uh, we could look to our own country at other points in its history as an example of a society that's uh, well-structured to favor uh, cooperation. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that because uh, I was kind of contrasting America with, with some of the Scandinavian countries and thinking of the American as kind of the, you know, the, the rugged individualist, those that try and strike out on their own, and, and which I feel makes more sense to me in the present day, as you mentioned, with the divisions and I got to take care of myself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so you can list the what's called the core design principles for a group to function well as a cooperative unit. And this, this uh, is uh, based on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And she studied groups that are managing common pool of resources. And the problem there is to avoid the famous tragedy of the commons. But what she discovered, and I worked with her for three years prior to her death, to generalize the principles that she discovered that uh, are important for any form of, of cooperation. And the top ingredient, the, the first core design principle is a strong sense of identity and purpose. A mm. group needs to know that it's a group, uh, that it's doing something meaningful, uh, who's a member and so on and so forth. So that's the number one ingredient for a group to function as a cooperative unit is for its members to actually see it as a group and its importance. So that's, uh, that's ingredient number one. Hmm. Do you think this is what makes humans different from animals? This, this ability to work so closely together? How do we understand the differences between the species that way? So on the question of, uh, of uh, humans being such a cooperative species, what we've shown, what evolution tells us is that um, is that uh, cooperation uh, everything we associate with virtue uh, can evolve by a darwinian process but only when special conditions are met and so broadly across nature we see both the presence and absence of cooperation and in many primate species including our closest relative the chimps what we see is a little cooperation and a lot of competition hmm. Um, many societies, including chimp society, would be regarded as despotic in human terms. Imagine uh, being in a, in a society in which you were just bossed around by people more powerful than you. Those mm. societies exist. And that's the way that, that chimp society has been forever. It's never going to change under those ecological circumstances. And so something happened in our species which enabled cooperation to evolve to a much greater degree. And it turns out that those are probably two things. Moving out into the savanna just called for a lot more cooperation. The, the environment called for a lot more cooperation just to survive as a primate living in the savanna compared to in the jungle. So there's actually quite a lot to be said there. But the other thing is the capacity for uh, social control. This is sometimes called reverse 
dominance that in a in a despotic society the bully dominates you uh, but what happens in a in a egalitarian society is that everyone collectively gangs up on the bully hmm. there's still domination but now it's the bully that's being put in his or her <laughs> place women can be bullies too mm -hmm. and so this capacity for social control is actually the basis for everything that we associate with morality well so this is what the scientists have discovered and recently i've been reading a book on indigenous thought called sand talk how indigenous thinking can save the world and i was so wonderful to discover uh, basically the same idea being expressed by an indigenous person and so here's a quote um, and it's about uh, the animal the emu in aborigine folklore and uh, and so he says um, emu is a troublemaker who brings into being the most destructive idea in existence i am greater than you you are less than me this is the source of all human misery aboriginal society was designed over thousands of years to deal with this problem some people are just idiots, and everyone has a bit of idiot in them from time to time, coming from some deep place inside that whispers, you are special, you are greater than other people and things, you are more important than everything and everyone, all things and all people exist to serve you. This behavior needs massive checks and balances to contain the damage it can do. I wouldn't change a word of that. Hmm. That is just exactly what hunter-gatherer society and what basically human society is all about that is uh, uh, that is uh, uh, protects for uh, cooperation wow interesting to, to hear that come through the, this indigenous wisdom and and one you, you reflected upon this a little bit earlier one that we kind of find in some of the the, the greater wisdom spiritual traditions in the world no well yes the entire the entire concept of sacredness what does it mean for something to be sacred? Mm. You place it above yourself. It is something It is something more important than you, and you subordinate yourself to it. So the whole idea that you would regard yourself as part of something larger than yourself, and then you serve it, um, is, the, is the psychology of the group, basically. Mm. The psychology of the group organism is has this sense of uh, uh, a sacredness, and actually, you know, this this conversation turns out to be a little bit about you know the other books that I am reading nowadays. I'll mention another, um, a businessman named Bob Chapman, who is has written a book titled "Everybody Matters: The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People," and so uh, he's a businessman that has actually had an epiphany. And adopted this attitude of reverence, basically, for the other members of your group, and turned it into a extraordinarily successful business technique. So, so mm -hmm. this is working in the in the current day uh, in just the same way as it needs to work in hunter gatherer society. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to get your thoughts on on one question: this idea of of, of the super organism, the idea that we're all kind of interconnected in that way. I, I wonder how you'd make sense of this kind of current moment and of this virus that has swept through the world and how maybe evolution has taken us to this point. Have you reflected on that at all recently? Well, sure, always. I mean, what we can say is that the world is already a interconnected 
system in every way, biologically, economically, so on and so forth. The idea that a, there could be a worldwide pandemic is one illustration of that, but so is everything else. So is climate change. So is, you know, um, the global um, uh, economy. So make no mistake, uh, the world is an interconnected system. The idea of Gaia, as was proposed scientifically, makes that same point for the impact, for example, of life living processes on the atmosphere. So the whole concept of the biosphere as a geological force and the uh, the atmosphere as a as a basically a product of uh, of biological processes is another example of that rich uh, interconnectedness. Uh, but interconnectedness by itself does not make an organism. That's the essential insight that I've been getting at again and again. Evolution doesn't make everything nice. It often results in in outcomes that benefit me but not you, us but not them, our short-term welfare, not our long-term um, welfare. And so in order for something to become an organism, then special conditions are required. Sometimes that happens naturally in, in nature, but for us to make it happen um, in our lives and for us to extend it to the worldwide scale, requires a conscious efforts on our part. We must bring about the super organism. And in Tehardian terms, uh, one of the conversations I've been having is with a wonderful uh, Dominican sister named Elia Delio. You might already know her. Mm. She's uh, very widely read. And Yeah, and let me just quickly jump in and say, um, by Tehardian, you're referring here to Tehard de Chardin. This was a uh, French Jesuit priest, a science paleontologist, a really interesting person. And um, he, among other things, had this theory that man is evolving mentally and socially towards what he called a, like a final spiritual unity. Anyway, continue now talking a bit about the nun. So she's a Catholic thinker, very much operating in the footsteps of, of Tehard. And we are able to talk with each other. We have such affinity because the, the, the whole concept of God can be understood in in terms of in terms of natural processes as Tehard did, and as she does. So, and Tehard regarded his evolutionary worldview as a metamorphosis of the Christian religion, one that was fully compatible with science, avoids the supernaturalism that so many people associate with religion, and she's here to actually continue that tradition in a very sophisticated way in conversation with people like me, an atheist and evolutionary biologist. So this is another example of the, of the basically the con convergence of, of thought. One of Tehard's great passages, phrases is, everything that rises must converge. And so I think <laughs> we're, kind of, we're kind of experiencing that. And it's a very exciting time intellectually and practically, in the first place, intellectually, to have such a comprehensive cosmology, basically, science-based cosmology, that's amazing. And then in order to turn that into a practical toolkit, basically, for actually, for actually formulating our policies and, and what we do, I think, you know, we are in a position of rapid positive change 
um, if we act upon these powerful new ideas. David Sloan Wilson, thank you so much for, for sharing your work with us on Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for making it known. Well, that's all the time we got for this week. Our producer on Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and a big thank you to all of you that have been supporting and contributing to KCRW. It means a lot to all of us. Have a great week.